0: You can't go a block in a city like New York without seeing someone walking a dog. Dogs are a big part of many people's lives and families. So much so, the city is now home to a cafe that's literally gone to the dogs.
1: So we do have the two separate spaces. So we needed a coffee side and a dog side and a walk-up window as well.
0: Coming up, a visit to New York City's first dog cafe on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Hi, I'm George Bodarkey, and this is Cityscape. This week's show is all about her canine companions, from the aforementioned dog cafe to a breakdown of every dog registration in New York City. But first, a visit to a social club for dogs on the LES, the Lower East Side. It's called Rough Club. We talked with co-owner Alexia Simon. What is Rough Club?
2: We are a dog daycare and social club in the East Village.
0: What inspired you to open up Rough Club?
2: Um, I'd come to a point in my career where I was ready for a big change and thought and thought and remembered an experience I'd had personally with my dog where I just felt that daycares, in, at, at least in New York, that I'd come across felt very impersonal. Um, you drop off your dog, the people working there don't really know you. They don't necessarily know your dog. They actually print out a collar that looks like a hospital band with your dog's information on it so that they can be identified. And it just kind of felt like we were dropping off our dry cleaning. And that's not what dogs are for most people. They're part of our family. Um, We love them. They're they're alive. (laughs) And so I decided I wanted to create a space where it was a much more personal uh, experience for the owners.
0: And what a unique space this is. This does not look like your typical doggy daycare. First of all, there is this amazing bar up front.
2: Uh, Yes. So as we were renovating, I had to do a bunch of research to make sure that this space was uh, legally allowed to have a dog daycare and there was no CFO on file anywhere. And I ended up at the Department of Buildings all the way up in the Bronx, I believe. And the only record I could find was a hand-drawn sketch of this building from, I believe it was 1898. Um, It was a school building but it was a bar for a couple of years, um, and unfortunately for them, they lost their liquor license. Lucky for me, (laughs) um, because as everyone knows, rents in Manhattan are not cheap.
0: You're not serving liquor from this bar, so how are you using this bar?
2: Um, We use it as our front desk, basically, Um, and we do have events from time to time where we serve food and Non alcoholic beverages. <laughs> um, so it's a great place to set up uh, for humans to be able to grab things for themselves and the dogs can't reach it mostly. We have a few that are on the taller side.
0: <laughs> now, how does Rough Club work? It's membership based, right?
2: Yeah, and most daycares do have a similar process as we do. Um, perhaps we focus on it more because we really want to emphasize the, the continuity of our members. Um, but basically we um, have an application process, as most places do, um, and we do a, a temperament assessment for each applicant. Um, we really want to make sure that the dogs that we have coming here are friendly and enjoy play Enjoy the the open play area. Um, you know, a lot of people sometimes feel very bad about leaving their dog home alone and want to put them in a, a more social situation. But the dog doesn't necessarily enjoy that. It doesn't make them a good dog or a bad dog. It's just different dogs are better in different situations. Um, so we just spend a couple hours and get to know them. So our membership is based on how well a dog does in daycare, not on the We are not judging the human applicants, um, which can be a misconception sometimes. All humans are welcome.
0: And how do you ensure that when the dogs are here, there are no shenanigans going on?
2: <laughs> um, so we spend a very long time training our, our staff, our dog handlers. Um, they're well-versed in body language, um, and that's one of the biggest concerns and and reasons why we want to have a very steady group of dogs you know sometimes I'll get a call from someone and they'll say I'm just going to be in town for a couple of days can I can I just bring my dog in while I'm here and I'll explain to them the the application process and they say okay well do you know anywhere where I can take my dog then my response is always well if they're just going to take your dog then they're just going to take anyone's dog and that means that even if your dog is good in daycare, the other dogs there could be dangerous. And that's terrifying because you want to make sure that everyone's safe. It's not like a, a one-to-one, you know, human-to-dog ratio like it is at the dog park where things can happen too. Um, it's one person, and the the standard is really supposed to be, like, 1 to 15 to 20 dogs, though you'll see more than that. Um But you have to have your eyes everywhere at all times. You have to know the dogs really well and know what their triggers are and be able to anticipate it. Because I don't want to have to spend a lot of time training you how to break up a fight. I want to make sure that you understand how to prevent it.
0: You mentioned that you hold events here. What kinds of events do you hold?
2: Um, We've had a number of fundraisers um, for rescue organizations. We did... To this year um, for um, the after the hurricanes, um, so benefiting Puerto Rico um, the we all of our the proceeds from our fundraisers for that one to the Sato project um, they've been around for a long time and they rescue dogs from Puerto Rico and um, also to the Texas um, SPCA we had a, another um, event with for them um, we've had. Smaller events just for members, you know, brunches. Um, we did a pool party one summer. <laughs> and that was a lot of work. Never again. <laughs> um, but it was it was very funny to watch the dogs get in the little kiddie pools and splash around. So,
0: how many members do you have?
2: Um, we currently have about 175 members, um, but obviously they do not all come every day. Um, we just try to keep all the dogs in the mix at least, you know, once a week, once every couple of weeks. Just make sure that you know we we know what's going on with them. They know who the, all the dogs that are here and. Just so that we can always predict their behavior.
0: Alexia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Alexia Simon is the co-owner of Rough Club on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Now, if your dog doesn't have the temperament to get along with other canines at a place like Rough Club, you may need to call in someone like Brian Burton. He's the co-owner of Instinct Dog Behavior and Training.
3: We started Instinct about 10 years ago, and uh, both my wife and I uh, run the company. We now have about 25 uh, employees. And uh, we just help, um, you know, we help thousands of, you know, owners and dogs every year just live more peacefully together.
0: So what inspired you and your wife to get into the dog training business?
3: Sarah had always, uh, you know, done volunteering um, and had, uh, uh, you know, has, has always, you know, volunteered at rescues and, and those types of things. I actually grew up afraid of dogs because I was bit um, in the face as a child um, I started in my early twenties starting to you know get involved and, and start to volunteer um and then you know as as I got into it and, and she did it more, we realized that that's how uh you know we wanted to you know spend our life uh helping dogs who um you know are struggling
0: Wow, what a process there a complete turnaround from being afraid of dogs to training dogs
3: yep <laughs> you know it's funny like i often I often think that um you know, if I hadn't been afraid of dogs, sometimes I wonder if I would be doing what I'm doing now because there was something special about it after uh, sort of overcoming that fear. And then, uh, you know, it, it, I think it seemed a little extra special.
0: So what are among the most common bad behaviors you see in dogs?
3: You know, in in the city especially, uh, the one we probably get called about the most is lunging and barking at other dogs on leash. Or you know sort of you know dogs who have issues with strangers are probably like two of the uh, you know the biggest issues that, that that come in on any particular day, so dogs who might be you know afraid or just don't like other dogs and are voicing their displeasure yeah or or dogs just dealing with um yeah, de- dealing with like, you know, guests coming over, the UPS man, um, those types of things. That's probably like the two two of the biggest common sort of behavior problems that, uh, that, that we run into.
0: So how do you get a dog more comfortable with other dogs or with human strangers?
3: The way we always think about this problem is there's really two things. And one is we have to change the emotional state of the animal uh, around those triggers. And then the second thing is we have to teach them what to do. So the way we think about it is we think about it uh in terms of involuntary behavior so that would be you know how they feel so you know, you think about, you know, if you're having a bad day, you might, you know, be frustrated. You can't really control it. So you see have these feelings. It's the same with dogs. So when they see other dogs, they, they have this emotional response. So that's something we want to deal with. And we usually deal with that through counter conditioning. So we start associating the trigger with something that is something that's going to change how their physiological system reacts. So, you know, it's common, you know, if a dog doesn't like other dogs, before they start lunging or barking, we might use food. And the, the purpose of the food there is to actually make them feel more relaxed. And then the second thing is we want to look at their voluntary behavior because behaviors have a function. So, you know, for a lot of dogs, for example, if they're lunging and barking at other dogs, or if they are lunging and barking at strangers uh, coming in through the door, the barking is usually to create space. So the, the, the lunging and barking that they're doing, the function of that behavior, say, hey, I'm uncomfortable and I need more space. So what we want to do is we want to teach them a replacement behavior that's going to give them the same outcome. So, for example, maybe with the dog lunging and barking on leash, we might teach them, if you look up, if you look up at me, we'll just walk by the dog. The dog will still go away. You know, we might teach a dog who doesn't like people coming over or is uncomfortable with people coming over that if they go hang out on their bed, people leave them alone uh when they're on their bed so it's really yeah it's really those two things it's it's changing how they feel and then and then really working on giving them a replacement behavior uh to replace a problem behavior
0: I understand you use your own helper pups to help dogs learn to socialize <laughs> and walk yep, yeah,
3: we do yeah, especially there's we use them in a couple of places one is um you know to socialize young puppies actually so Um, You know, I think sometimes we've, you know, there's a lot of puppy play classes and those types of things out there. But I think sometimes we forget that those puppies should also get some time around, uh, you know, older dogs uh, who are friendly with puppies. So we use them a lot in our puppy classes. Um, and to socialize young puppies that that come in. And then we'll also, um, you know, use them, especially, you know, like I was talking about the dogs who, you know, lunge and bark on leash. You know, if we have dogs who are just uncomfortable around other dogs, uh, sometimes we do need to use our well-trained dogs as, as sort of neutral dogs in the beginning so we can start building up that muscle memory, you know, for the dog that we're working with so that they're kind of like easy dogs to start with, so then we can kind of go into more like normal everyday dogs. And then there are some dogs, you know, we'll have some dogs who are older and, uh they just never you know had a lot of exposure to other dogs in terms of socializing and you know they're not aggressive or anything they're just nervous and um, it's really important for them to have exposure uh to dogs who are going to respect when they say they need space um but they're still going to try to you know entice them to play and that sort of thing but yeah no they're they're definitely um a big part of what we do and um yeah they they work hard
0: (laughs) are any particular dog breeds harder to train than others
3: it depends on what we're working on, right? So, like for example, the the, the examples I give is, is like you know it's you definitely can't deny that genetics influences behavior. Um, it doesn't mean that you know a dog of a particular breed is always going to do something, but you know generally when we when we're raising puppies, you know, like for example, if we were trying to train a dog to retrieve. You know, training a retriever to do that is probably going to be easier than a terrier, because <laughs> you know, like the golden retriever puppies are, are, you know, a lot of them when they're younger are picking up socks and bringing them back to you, whereas like the little rat terriers or Jack Russells are, are killing the socks. So I think that it's more so, you know, looking at, you know, th- there's definitely a genetic influence there. Um, looking at sort of the 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 history that that the dog has and looking at the environment that they're in. Um, but I think what's more important than the breed is actually taking the the, the personality into account and figuring out what motivates a dog because that's always going to be different and the longer we've trained I think that's really uh what what, what becomes most important to us.
0: How challenging might it be for a suburban dog that moved to the city with its owner? Mm. Or vice versa for that matter. In
3: Generally, it's easier going the other way, but yeah, there's definitely some suburban dogs or rural dogs that come here, and it's not uncommon. We, we probably get a couple of calls a week um, of people whose dogs were you know, doing fine in their suburban environment, but really in the city, there's just a lot more environmental pressure, so it's, just, it's more crowded. Um, you don't have as much space. Um, so, just like sometimes people can get a little bit more grumpy in the city, you know, kind of, you know, pushing their way through sidewalks and competing more for like spatial resources and those types of things, um, it can affect uh, dogs the same way. So, I think a lot of times it comes down to there's just more environmental stressors and pressures um, in the city. So, it, you know, we just, you have to teach them that, um, you know, that they can be relaxed and comfortable here and then, you know, just giving them some time to uh, habituate to the new environment.
0: What would you say, Brian, has surprised you most about doing this, working with dogs?
3: I think what's most important is, in terms of like what a well-trained dog is, I really do think it's it's that the dog is happy, that the people are happy, and that um, you know obviously the dog is safe in society. I think that you know the, the longer you do this, the more you realize, uh, the more you help a dog feel comfortable um, in their. in in their world and feel safe, um, a lot of the training issues kind of look after themselves that's probably been the thing that's really jumped out at me over the years compared to when I first started doing this years ago.
0: And your slogan is a kinder world through dog training, right?
3: Yeah, I think for both Sarah and I and everyone at Instinct, it has a lot of different meanings. But I really think when, you know, when you're when you trying to help a, another species who perceives the world differently than you, um, I think it really opens your eyes and helps you take the perspective of others. Um, and not just with um, you know other dogs, just other people, just that we all view things differently. We all have different motivations. And I think that understanding that you you know, for most bad behavior, there, there's a reason for it. It doesn't always make it excusable, but, you know, we can at least understand it and then, you know, try to help. So I think that's that, that, that's where that saying comes
0: from. Great. Brian, your website is? Uh, instinctdogtraining.com. Brian, thanks so much for your time. Okay, thank you. Brian Burton is the co-owner of Instinct Dog Behavior and Training. Hi! What do dog breeds in a particular neighborhood say about property values in the community? New York Times real estate reporter Stefanos Chen took the time to analyze every dog registration in the city, and he's here to tell us about the connections he's made. Stefanos, thanks so much for taking the time.
4: Sure. Thanks for having me.
0: So you analyzed every dog registration in New York City?
4: That's right, yeah. So what we did is we, uh, we request from the city... Uh, Department of uh, Health and, and Mental Hygiene for all of the uh, dog breed registrations in the five boroughs from 2012 to 2016, which was the most recent data we can get at the time.
0: What prompted you to do that?
4: I mean, just living in New York uh, all of my life, I you know, it's always kind of a joke talking about the, what the dogs say about the neighborhood, and um, in noticing how the dogs, dog breeds have shifted, have kind of, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, been an indicator of, of how the neighborhood itself is shifting. And, and it, I think it, it can tell us a lot about uh, the real estate. It can tell us a lot about the population and demographic shifts. And, you know, we wanted to put that to the test, so we, we got all of this raw data, and we sliced and diced it a couple of different ways, and uh, we came up with some some pretty interesting observations.
0: Yeah, so that said, what can it tell us about the real estate?
4: Uh, When you look at it from a top-down perspective, what it it does show us in some ways is that uh, the the way in which dogs change also kind of mirrors the way in which gentrification is taking place across the city, how property prices are rising in some neighborhoods and sort of surpassing uh, kind of the old guard neighborhoods that we used to think of as as being the most affluent and, and the most expensive, um, and one fun example of that we found uh, was uh, when you look at a dog like the poodle, which uh, is you know sort of the stereotypical dog of the Upper East Side. You know you'd imagine him in sort of these these fancy co-op buildings, um, and that's still true. The poodle is still very popular on the Upper East and Upper West. But in the data, we found that uh, down in actually Health Kitchen and the Chelsea area in uh, Midtown West, that's actually where the the poodle grew the most in that five-year period. Um, And so it was kind of fun looking at how that dog sort of um, was a predictor of of property prices, because in that same five year window we we found that uh, the Hell's Kitchen in Chelsea area surpassed the upper east side in in real estate prices
0: are there any neighborhoods in which dog breeds are actually dwindling in number
4: yeah and it was it's sort of sad to look at at that stat but uh, when we took a closer look, most dogs in the city either were flatter or grew, um, but there was one of the, the one of the top one hundred most popular dogs uh that stood out to us was the Rottweiler. And again, it's sort of an iconic New York dog, the same way that the Poodle was for for certain sort of affluent precincts of the city. The Rottweiler, in a lot of ways, is, is um, sort of just a neighborhood dog that, you know, if, if you've been in New York long enough, you kind of saw the park or saw it being walked down the block. Um, and, and it was um, the dog that declined the most in that, the top 100 breeds. And so we kind of wanted to investigate why that might be. And when you look at the neighborhoods in which that dog is still most popular, it's in areas of the city like in, in the Southeast Bronx, for instance. Uh, and that's actually where the dog, uh, the Rottweiler, was most popular for the for five straight years, actually. Um, what it says about um, the community, what it says about um, the dogs, and, and sort of you know the trajectory of, of certain neighborhoods. And in talking with people in the Bronx, you know, they it, it was sort of a interesting to, I mean, not to read too much into it, but I'm probably projecting a little bit here on on uh, what the dogs say about us. But you know, it, it, people tell me that it's a, it's a loyal neighborhood dog. I mean, it's also a big dog, uh, where the general trend in the city has been um, getting smaller. And um, you know, it's not it's not a luxury sort of cosmopolitan dog that you might find from a pure breeder um so it it kind of reflects you know just sort of a, a blue collar um sensibility in the city that um you don't really find in some of these more expensive areas but um another sort of trend that we're seeing in the city is this um The popularity of adoption and how uh, adopted breeds um, are becoming more popular across the economic spectrum so that you have more affluent people as well. In some of these more expensive neighborhoods, uh, picking up dogs that you wouldn't uh, sort of uh, assume to be, you know, the dog of choice for people in, in wealthier neighborhoods.
0: Are we seeing that most dogs in New York City are on the smaller side?
4: Yes, for, for the most most part, when we look at the top dog breeds in the city, the top was was the Yorkie, which is a a cute little lap dog, uh, and then the Shih Tzu, which is not much larger, uh, were the top two. Number three was the Lab Labrador Retriever, which is a larger dog, and actually we f- we find that in uh, kind of counterintuitively in in both more expensive neighborhoods where the uh the dog owner probably has the means to keep a larger dog in their apartment, but also in the outer outer boroughs where uh, you're more likely to have uh sort of a single family situation like in uh, in staten island actually. staten island uh one neighborhood in Staten Island was tied with Greenwich Village in Soho as having the largest share of big dogs. Um, so it was Greenwich uh, and Port Richmond in Staten Island were tied at nineteen percent for having uh, very large dogs.
0: Did you come across any rare or new breeds that have come into the city in recent years?
4: Well, my favorite one that came out of the rare dogs was was the Sholo Uh It's the uh, it's a Mexican breed dog that um, actually just got kind of a star turn in the Pixar film Coco. So that was one that that showed up. Where we we actually asked a national uh, breeding um, association how many there are in the country, and and it's really just a uh, a few dozen uh, in nationwide. So to have Uh, as many as we do in in New York, was, was fascinating.
0: What would you say surprised you most in crunching these registrations?
4: Just how well they they sort of track with with who we are as a city and and kind of what it it tells us about you know the the trajectory of certain neighborhoods and and you know the things that we we value um, so looking at how the dogs have gotten smaller certainly reflects uh, how most of us live, which is in, in cramped apartments in New York but um you know looking at how uh, where those larger dogs are for instance in the city and how it it sort of speaks to both affluence and and um and at the same time, also uh, more of a blue-collar suburban idea. You saw a lot of that, a lot of that in, in Staten Island and Queens. So we, it was just interesting to see, you know, what the dogs say about us.
0: Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. To learn more about Stefanos' analysis, check out his New York Times article online entitled The Yorkies' Dominance. If you want to get a sense of some of the dogs that call Manhattan's Lower East Side home, Boris and Horton is the place to go. It's New York City's first dog-friendly cafe. I recently caught up with Boris and Horton's co-owner, Logan Mickley.
1: My name is Logan Mickley, and I'm the co-owner of Boris and Horton.
0: And who is this in your lap? Or was in your lap, just jumped out of your lap?
1: That is Horton, and he's my dog, and he's an eight-year-old Chihuahua Terrier mix.
0: So if that is Horton, who is Boris?
1: Boris is my dad's dog, who's the other co-owner, and he is a two-year-old Pitbull mix.
0: How did you and your dad come up with this idea?
1: We came up with the idea for Boris and Horton out of a love for both dogs and coffee. So we would walk our dogs together in New York, and we found that a lot of the time we would see one person was standing outside with their dog waiting for the other person to get coffee, or people would tie their dogs up outside while they ran in to get coffee, and we wanted to come up with a solution for that.
0: So what are the challenges to opening a place where you serve food and allow dogs?
1: Yeah, so I think the biggest challenge is that we're the first place that's doing it within Department of Health guidelines. So we had to kind of figure out what that means and what we needed to do with the space in order to be compliant. But we actually found that the health department was very easy to work with and they were very upfront about what the requirements were. So the biggest challenge for us was not really working with them, but it was finding a location that sort of fit with all of our needs. So we do have the two separate spaces. So we needed a coffee side and a dog side and a walk-up window as well.
0: We are right now in the dog side, and there are dogs all around us.
1: Yes, yeah. so it's it's definitely the best place to work ever. It's very hard to be in a bad mood when you're here because we're just surrounded by dogs, which are awesome, and we've been really happy to see that the dogs actually really get along with each other. They seem to understand the space, and everybody has a really good time.
0: How long have you been open now?
1: So we opened the first week in February, so we've been open for about a month.
0: What's it been like? Any surprises for you?
1: It's been great. Really fun. We love meeting our neighbors. We love meeting dogs. It's been great to see that we have regulars now. So a lot of our customers tell us that their dogs actually pull them into the space to get treats and to get pets from us. So that's been really fun. And we're just really happy to see that the neighborhood has taken onto our concept. They really like it. And we hope that this will be the first of many.
0: What's on the human menu here?
1: So our coffee partner is City of Saints, so we offer their full coffee menu as well as a special blend that we call the Boris Blend, and it's a bit of a darker profile, tastes like chocolate and marshmallows. So we have really great coffee drinks as well as a full menu of toasts. So we're a vegetarian menu, which means you're going to find avocado toast, white bean, tahini toast, a really amazing banana bread with labna bananas, and honey, a bunch of pastries, and then uh, cheese plates from Murray's.
0: And, of course, on this side, you also have doggy treats. I see them behind the glass right over there.
1: Yeah, we couldn't forget our dogs. So we have a bakery case uh, filled with fresh treats from Maison de Paz, and those are delivered a few times a week, and they're all human-grade ingredients. And Boris has a really sensitive stomach, and Horton is extremely picky, and they passed their tests. They're both obsessed with the donuts and the cupcakes, so we knew that if it worked for Boris and Horton, it was going to work for pretty much every dog.
0: Now, unlike cat cafes, these dogs are not up for adoption. These dogs have owners.
1: Yes, so I think there's a big distinction. We are a dog-friendly cafe, but we're not a dog cafe, so dogs don't actually live here. This is very much a solution for dog owners who want to drink coffee, eat food, drink wine and beer alongside their dog. But rescue is extremely important to us, so several times a week you'll find different rescues in here with adoptable dogs. So it is a great place to come if you're looking for a dog, or maybe you just want to hang out with a dog, pet a dog, but you can't have one.
0: There's a lot of chatter here. It's the middle of the day, a lot of activity, a lot of socializing.
1: Yes, yeah, Fridays are really fun. It's probably my favorite day in the space because it feels a little bit more casual. We get a lot of our regulars in, and it's just really good vibes in here right now.
0: Do you see a lot of people spark? new relationships here meet up make friends
1: yeah the thing that we say about dogs is that they kind of invite you to talk to your neighbor so i don't know if you've ever walked a dog down the street but people actually smile and they chat and that's not something that you see in new york a lot so we love that about the space that you actually might strike up a conversation with your neighbor you're definitely going to pet the dog next to you and it feels like a much more friendly coffee shop than a lot of the other ones around
0: Do you have to have a dog to come to Boris and
1: Horton? No, we never want anyone to think that they have to have a dog with them. They can hang out. Pet dogs. Horton's here. Boris is here a lot. Or, if they're not even interested in dogs, we do have some seating on the cafe side that you can kind of take a peek into the dog side, but you actually don't have to interact with dogs to be here.
0: What about if you have a cat? Can you bring your cat...
1: No. So I always say for the safety of the cat that we are dog-friendly only. I have a cat. She would not do well here. So Boris and Horton, we obviously have a full menu. We have great coffee drinks, and we do have a retail side for dogs. So we took a lot of time picking out some really fun gifts for dogs. So great sweaters, leashes, collars. If you need to pick up a gift for someone, we have some really giftable treats and things. We work with a lot of small brands from New York, so we have some really fun stuff.
0: What's it like being in business with your dad?
1: Being in business with my dad is great. It's actually our second business that we've done together, and we work really well together. He's really awesome, and I think he's a super special person to be able to think of this dog cafe with me and actually do it. So I'm super grateful for the opportunity.
0: Logan, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you boris and horton is located on manhattan's lower east side we talked with co-owner logan mickley and that's it for this week's cityscape i'm george Boraki. my thanks to producers julia seabode and caroline motante thank you so much for listening